0: Is Assad winning the Syrian war and are the Kurds his new front line? Putin, does his bombing campaign make him a war criminal? If the UK pulls out of the EU, what happens to NATO? And Britain sends its part-time soldiers to do a full-time job in Kenya. We've got
1: to get the reservists fully integrated, and if we don't get it right at Batok, then we're not going to get it right in operations.
0: There have been two bomb attacks in Turkey in the last 24 hours. Today, six soldiers were killed while travelling in a military vehicle in the southeast of the country. Yesterday, 28 people died in the capital, Ankara. The Turkish prime minister says nine people have been arrested in connection to that, and he blames the Syrian Kurdish militant group, the YPG, and the Kurdish separatists in Turkey, the PKK. Well, let's talk to Professor Michael Clark, former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, and BFPS defence analyst Christopher Lee is here in the studio. But Christopher, how many different Kurd groups are there? Who are they and what they want?
2: We only need to concentrate on two, really. And that's the ones that are in Turkey, which you have the politicians for 40 years, the, the Turks and the Kurdish group in Turkey, have been at each other's throats. The military side of that is the, is the YPG. When you go across the border into Syria... You have the the other lot, uh, and they are the YPD. In effect, they're having the same af- the effect. They are now disrupting what's going on in Turkey and also having a hand in what's going on in that battle around uh, Aleppo. They're actually there, whereas before they weren't. And behind it, you've got the problem of the Russians are supporting the ones in Syria, and therefore they're helping them to get to Aleppo, etc., and in, in Turkey, the Americans, tacitly anyway, are supporting uh, or trying to support the YPG. And so what Russia is doing by this is actually splitting two NATO allies, Turkey, and they're splitting America from Turkey. And that is the great political problem.
0: W- to that backdrop, Professor Michael Clark, hello to you. Um, yes, hello. Uh, Why do you think these bomb attacks have been happening in Turkey? Who do you think is behind them and what do you think the motive is?
3: Well, uh, Mr. Erdogan today seemed to be uh, blaming the YPG, the Syrian uh, Kurds, but also, the, as Christopher said, the PKK, who are the erstwhile enemies of the Turkish government. <coughs> and it, it, the, the general assumption is that that's... It's quite likely to be one of those two groups, or, or both of them, because in the last couple of years, one of the effects of the ISIS phenomenon has been to break what was a what was a promising-looking ceasefire in 2013 between the the Kurds in Turkey and the and the Turkish government, and we all thought that the Turkish government would get used to the idea of a new Kurdistan in Iraq, uh, where Kurds live, but in fact the the militarization of the region and the fact that the Kurds are now seem to be determined to carve out a heartland for themselves across three states rather than just one um, has led the Turkish government to bomb the Kurds. And so when the, the Turks say that we're in the war against ISIS, they are spending more time bombing the Kurds. And the way the Kurds respond to that is with terrorism in the heart of the Turkish government itself. Well, the-, the,
2: Turk, I mean, the, the Turks regard uh, the Kurds as a much bigger threat than ISIS itself.
3: Yes, they do, yep.
2: And the other part of this becomes rather, it becomes important. It's spread right across the region. Uh, and don't forget, Kurds are also Sunnis. And therefore, you have this connection, you see, where you have uh, Assad is, uh, is, is not a Sunni, uh, he's an Alawite, and that becomes important. But you've got this whole 30 million people who are Kurds. When we talk about the successes, don't we, in Iraq, who's there? The Kurdish Peshmerga.
0: Uh, Professor Michael Clark, um, in that light the perception of enemy and ally the the Kurds in Syria uh, and the Kurds perceived as enemies by the Mm. Turks and yet those Kurds in Syria are perceived as allies by America because they're fighting ISIS this puts America in a very difficult position because it has a NATO ally on one side and then it has other allies which are perceived as terrorists by their NATO ally.
3: Yeah that's exactly right, it's what happens in a civil war that it's impossible to be consistent from an outside powers perspective (coughs) and the, the Syrian Kurds have been doing better against Isis than the Peshmerga who are the Iraqi Kurds um, the Iraqi Kurds are in a sense they, they're almost like Warsaw Pact train they have rather static um, te- uh, uh, sort of doctrine and, and tactics the Syrian Kurds have been far more flexible and have been much more effective and the Americans got very keen on the Syrian Kurds a year ago because they thought these are the guys who are really beginning to bottle Isis up which mm. is true but that raises a real problem with Turkey itself because when Turkey was looked as if it was getting used Used to the idea of a Kurdistan, Kurdistan would only be in one country, northern Iraq. But if you could put an oval on the map, as Chris said, 30 million people, it covers western Iran, northern Iraq, northern Syria, and southeastern Turkey. And if you put that oval mm. around all the people who are Kurdish, that covers about a third of Turkish territory, so there's, the Turks
2: are never going to agree to it. There's a line which goes from roughly a place called Ifrin, or the province of Ifrin, in northwest Syria, and it goes right down to Iraq. And the Turks are now saying the Kurds are going to have the control of that. And that changes what everybody sees the wars about. Don't forget, in Syria, for example, 10% of the population, say two, three millions, 10% of the population are Kurds. This is not just a scavenger group. Mm. This is not just a bunch of guys that somebody's pulled together to fight somebody else.
0: Well, on Monday, a hospital in northwest Syria, backed by Médecins Sans Frontières, was destroyed in an airstrike. Twenty-five people were killed. Well, now the medical charity has called for an independent investigation. Well, let's talk to André Heller-Perash, MSF UK's head of programmes and a former head of the mission in Syria. Good to speak to you today. Um, Who does MSF believe is responsible for that particular airstrike?
4: Uh, well, currently we don't have any more statements regarding the responsibility of the airstrike than we already previously let out. Um, but what's important is that uh, we do believe that it was a deliberate hit on the hospital, or multiple deliberate hits on the hospital. I mean, effectively, there was two separate airstrikes that destroyed different parts uh, of the building in two separate, in two separate attacks. Um, it was precise in the nature of the way that it was hit, uh, not collateral damage from a target that was nearby, uh, then there was an additional attack um, uh, reminiscent of a style that we call a, or that, that's referred to as a double tap uh, where in which uh, some uh, one hour later uh, when there's a rescue operation underway, it's once again hit. Uh, and then further to that, some of the patients had been referred to another hospital in the area that was also hit uh, one hour after the last hit on the mm. rec- rescue operation. Um, what this highlights for us is uh, that This isn't uh, an unfortunate uh, incident uh, or a mistake, but this is rather a feature of this conflict. And it has been a feature of the conflict from the very beginning of it, uh, where in which humanitarian aid and medical care uh, in opposition held territories uh, has been uh, under fire. Um, Some groups estimate that there's been over 250 uh, hospitals or medical facilities destroyed since the beginning of the conflict. 60% Mm. of the state's uh, hospital infrastructure has either been damaged or destroyed. Mm. Um, I can go on with the statistics. Uh,
0: Yes, I I know you don't want to repeat who you hold responsible for this, but you do believe it's Syrian and Russian forces' involvement. Uh, The ambassador, the Syrian ambassador to the uh, UN has reportedly said the hospitals are being built without their permission or their knowledge. And he says he said words to to the effect of, you know, you have to assume the full consequences of that acts because they weren't authorized by the Syrian regime. How do you respond to that kind of statement?
4: Well, basically, in June of 2012, uh, the regime had passed um, a kind of anti-terror law which uh, rendered illegal um, all hospitals in opposition held territory, as well as all aid work. Uh, and since then, there has been a rampant targeting of, uh, well, basically everything um, that was otherwise previously considered protected by international humanitarian law. Um, so essentially, the reason why we operate the way that we do in Syria is because we have no choice. We've asked uh, the government if we're able to work uh, in these areas, and they've repeatedly denied uh, not just us, but everyone else access. Uh, unless they work specifically under their auspices. Mm. Uh, Today there's besieged areas throughout the country. We consider that there's about two million people who are living in conditions of siege, which means uh, basically they're cut off uh, from any kind of even somewhat regular flow of uh, food, uh, aid, uh, medicine, Uh, completely unable to uh, do medical evacuations of people. Uh, It's it's an extremely shocking situation there. It's not new. It's been like this for a long time.
0: And how do you respond to the kind of allegations made by the Syrian government that that, uh, the hospitals are being used basically for spying, for intelligence gathering?
4: Well, I think that that's... uh, I don't have anything to say about that. I mean, for us, it's it's absolutely absurd that medical operations by this organization would be some form of spying. Um, it's a common kind of allegation when countries aren't friendly towards aid work in areas that they wish to maintain in a marginalized status. Um, Sadly, this kind of rhetoric is also not new. It's not the first time that we've heard that as well. Um, We would love to be able to work with full permission to run emergency medical operations in the way uh, that is required by the population seeking health care. But unfortunately, we're not able to. And in 2015 alone, uh, MSF supports a wide number of hospitals and medical networks in the country, mainly focused in the besieged areas. Mm -hmm. Uh, In those areas, we had a total of 150,000 war wounded individuals, of whom 30 to 40% were women and children. So that's in the besieged areas. That means 36,000 women and children came for surgical interventions uh, or some kind of an emergency room checkup. Uh, and over 10,000 came in areas that aren't considered besieged that are closer to the borders. When you look at statistics like that, the need is absolutely crystal clear. Mm-hmm. There should be no questions about our operating where we do.
0: All right. Andre heller Perash. thank you very much for your time today. Um, listening to that was Professor Michael Clark. Uh, Michael, when, when you hear that kind of testimony, uh, obviously a deliberate hit is completely... Completely different to an accidental hit and we're talking about people here if it is the russians who've been invited in by the syrian government at what point does it become a war crime
3: well anything that is deliberate in this context is a war crime and generally speaking um, most weapons don't go off course when when the, the wrong target is hit it's normally because it's been misidentified through an intelligence failure or whatever else <clears throat> but when you've got two or three uh, consecutive hits on MSS facilities. I think most the uh, most uh, fair-minded people would say that mm. cannot be accidental. In that case, it is technically it's a war crime.
0: Well, Russia has rejected accusations that it's committed war crimes by targeting health facilities in Syria. Let's hear from the BBC's diplomatic correspondent Bridget Kendall. Good to speak to you, today, Bridget. For nearly five years, the West has been saying bombing won't bring a truce in Syria. But do you think Russia's bombing
5: actually might bring that about? Well, it depends what you mean by truce. Let's not forget that at the same time as this very intense and complicated conflict around Aleppo in northern Syria, there have been negotiations going on over the last few days in Damascus with UN envoys who say that they're hopeful that they are beginning to get food aid through to besieged areas in other parts of Syria. And so there we're talking about very. Limited local truces in order to get this much needed aid in. And so, two things. It's also said sometimes,
0: Bridget, that those truces are also quite useful for getting weapons into whatever side you're trying to put weapons
5: into. Well, that's possible. But I think I- I- if you also. Um, understand that as well as there being a military operation going on there are also all sides are trying to argue their case and Moscow is as well it's been quite defensive about this whole hospital business, there have been multiple statements from Moscow, the latest from the foreign ministry spokesman today who said they've been quite careful to say there's no evidence direct or indirect to say that they've struck hospitals in Syria and that it's all a lie or that it's western propaganda but I hear in that that they're very keen to, to try for those people who listen to their point of view to keep the moral high ground and say that what they're doing is hitting terrorists and they're all for truces and for getting food in, but at the same time you've got to clear these parts of Syria of illegal military um, formations and groups who are allied to jihadists and this includes not just so-called islamic state but other groups and that's the problem of course around aleppo that the russians claim that what they're doing is legitimate according to the deal signed in munich because it said that uh, it was still all right to go after terrorists but who are they talking about who do you
0: think is actually driving this russian strategy
5: i think it's president putin and a small group of people around him and they have Um, various, I think, concerns, some of them military, some of them political. They... Changed the game by entering the war in September. And that was pretty clearly to save President Assad from being pushed back, basically, until he reached the coast and fell into the Mediterranean Sea. Mm. And also, uh, they argue, because he's got the only ground troops who can take on the other enemy in the east, that is to say, so-called Islamic State. But the other big game changer, which relates to the conversation you had earlier about the Kurds, is that Russia and Turkey fell out. A year ago, they were pretty good allies. Mm. Um, President Putin was visiting Istanbul to sign a memorandum about a new pipeline. They Mm. fell out over that um, military plane, which was shot down by the Turks. And now their deal is over. And one way that their deal is over is that some things that they tacitly agreed uh, uh, with each other are no longer holding, so that Mm. the Turks are now criticising Russia over the Crimean Tatars being repressed in Crimea and the Russians have come back in and are allied to, Cr- the, to the Kurds. Christopher Lee, do, do you think that going forward to bring about some kind of peace in Syria,
0: there will have to be a change in strategy, that the exceptions will have to be that Assad can stay in some
2: form? Well, I mean... The point, the first point you've got to do, you've got to get the assets of this world in, otherwise he's representatives, not the man himself. You've got to get them to peace conferences. You've also got to get the so-called different rebel groups at the peace conferences, as they're called. You've got to get far more people sitting around the same table with the same, even if they're proximity talks more or less having the same aim and also recognising perhaps, perhaps that Assad is part of the so-called solution. Think to remember again with this bombing. It is how you bomb and it's how the, um, Shogoy, um, Mr. Shorgoy the, the, the defense minister, who, in, in, theory, in theory, is running it all on part, on part of uh, Mr. Putin. You get down to the command level and you begin to study how the Russian command level works at this, uh, if you like, divisional brigade level. And that's also to do with the Air Force. And you start looking at the weapons they're using. And also, for example, if you've got a, if you've got a very sophisticated, smart weapon, you can say, I don't hit targets I don't intend to hit because with that particular weapon we know we can be guided straight onto it. It's those sort of complications that when you come to talks here is the evidence that people start throwing back it causes animosities instead of the very very simple thing and that is how far has the war gone how far do we all anticipate it can go under the present circumstances and therefore is that the right time to go to a peace conference because you only go to a peace conference when you start to think to yourself I'm not getting the best out of this.
0: Briefly, Bridget, what of this peace conference?
5: Well, I think that the Russians are trying to um, carve out a reality on the ground, which is the one they want anyway, so they can then go to the peace conference and get everyone to endorse it. And that is maybe not that President Assad himself stays. I've heard senior Russian figures saying to me they're not wedded to him, but it has to be people around him in the regime who will keep um, the same sort of uh, regime in power uh, so that it doesn't get handed over to, in their view, uh, Sunnis from the other side who are far too closely allied to what they consider as extremists. But they want a reality on the ground that means Russia still has a foothold there, that it's a big player, that America is made to look weak, and Russian military power is back and has shown that it can be effective.
0: Bridget Kendall, thank you for your time.
5: Sit,
0: Still to come, why British reservists have invaded Kenya and why the Defence Secretary has invaded the Falklands. BFBS Zip rep. Tonight, all European Union heads of government are meeting to talk through Britain's list of changes that Prime Minister Cameron wants in the EU. On the political side, the UK is heading for a third week in June referendum, asking, do you want to stay or do you want to go? But if the answer were to be a UK pull-out, where does that leave Britain in NATO, and equally important, in the transatlantic club as America's major ally in Europe? Professor Michael Clark is still with us. Um Let's start with NATO then. What do you think? Maybe he isn't. He's left already. Christopher, NATO, what do you think? OK.
2: Um, NATO and the EU are quite separate organisations. However, there's one connection, and that is a lot of members of the EU, the 28 members of the EU, are also members of NATO. But Not all of them, but there are. The, the, the tactical, strategic thinking and the purpose of NATO is quite separate in some senses than it is uh, for the eu so rea- in reality, not a huge amount of difference. The biggest difference can easily come with the transatlantic arrangement with the united states that 's not with the president or the defense secretary or or the or, the, or the secretary of state. Far more at congressional level when they have great suspicions of europe uh, and which are understandable go back to one thousand nine hundred and forty seven and they can actually say to themselves, look, if Europe is breaking up, and to see United Kingdom pulling out of the EU, which to them, a lot of people in Congress will be the same as pulling out of NATO, even if it isn't, mm-hmm. they say, why should we support these people and the rate we're supporting them now? Not with money, not even with, uh, not even with tactics, but with actual presence and say, look, there's a lot in uh, uh, Europe that it's got to get on and do for itself, which is exactly what they said in 1947.
0: Professor Michael Clark, uh, America then, do you think that uh, leaving the EU for the UK would really damage its standing and its credibility on the world stage?
3: That's what the Americans always tell us and have been telling us for some years. <clears throat> I mean, you know, whatever the arguments are internally in the UK about our relationship with the EU and whether the EU would be a, a better vehicle for our diplomacy than we are uh, independently, the Americans don't see all the, uh, the the nuances that we think we see because this is all part of our internal politics. So the Americans have been saying to us for years first of all two things one don't pull out of the eu and don't let your defense spending drop below two percent of gdp Mm -hmm. because they just they just they would regard that as britain as it were just exiling itself from the european mainstream now and and we made we might argue there's all sorts of other ways we could play a role the americans just don't see it
0: and and do you think um the uk pulling out of the eu and the way america would perceive that would affect the way america wants to spend on defense
3: I don't think it would affect American spending uh, in in total, but it would affect their uh, view of whether Europe is a going concern in a defence sense, because the more splits they see in Europe, and they always see quite a lot of splits, but the more splits they see, the more they feel that the Europeans are not willing to take responsibility for their own defence. And undoubtedly, the EU would be much the weaker, not just in defence terms, but in other sorts of ways, if Britain was not a member. So everybody loses, in a sense. Um,
2: Ash Carter, the American Defense Secretary, has got a, a proposal for uh, 2017 spending going through Congress or starting to go through Congress right now, uh, and it includes—is it 400 percent increase, Mike? In the 400 yep. in, percent increase in how much they spend in Europe.
3: That's right, yes. I mean, that's the the, the counter-Russia argument, that uh, they've got to be seen to put more um, hardware and troop rotations into Europe. And if they weren't doing that, as it were, more in alignment with the UK, then they would align for sure much more with Germany.
2: Okay. so what happens if the UK... Then says, well, we're coming out of Europe, a lot of people in Congress, in, in, not so much, in the, as I say, in, in, in Washington, the other side, uh, say, hey, listen, what's going on there? Are the Europeans going soft again? Is Britain, our big ally, going soft? They will then question... The appropriations committees, the defence committees um, will start questioning the defence budget, which says we're do- putting a uh, 400% inc- uh, four times increase into Europe. Mm. And what are we getting back? We're getting back some very, very old European ideas. Mm.
3: Michael. Yes, agree with that. As always, these big um, strategic questions are we a member of the EU or are we not? for the outside world come down to very simple equations just as when the united states talked about or the president talked about a, a pivot to asia and then he sort of backed off whether he's pivoting to asia the rest of the world didn't worry about the nuances of it or the subtleties they just said is the america is the american uh, superpower now leaving europe mm. in order to concentrate on asia people see it in very simplistic right. terms and that's the way the eu and the uk is seen
0: all right professor michael clark thank you so much for joining us today Reserve and regular riflemen have been training side by side in Kenya in the largest ever deployment of reservists on an overseas exercise. More than 100 members of seven rifles joined with their full-time colleagues from the 2nd Battalion to take part in the first exercise Askari Storm of 2016. BFBS reporter Fiona Weir joined them.
1: Archer's Post is hot, arid and austere. For 60 years it's been providing the toughest and most challenging training the British military has to offer. Four times the size of Salisbury Plain and 300 kilometres north of the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, 10,000 troops train here each year. Exercise the Scary Storm is about going back to basics, surviving in arduous conditions, developing what Lieutenant Colonel Neil Bellamy describes
5: as an expeditionary mindset. I think over the last couple of decades we've become fixed in ground-holding campaigns, uh, larger-scale interventions. Uh, This particular exercise is a good example of how a light rock company or battle group would deploy into a fairly austere environment. Fend for themselves and set up an infrastructure around them as they develop the battle picture, rather than be parachuted into a ready formed camp.
1: Archer's post is tough for the most experienced of regular soldiers, and Colonel Tom Vallings, the commander, says the new influx of reservists to the area has brought a whole new dimension to the training. What BATIC does best is prepare battle groups ready for the next operation. Uh, Operations in the future are going to be with reservists. So we've got to make it work, we've got to get the reservists fully integrated and if we don't get it right at Batoc then we're not going to get it right on operations. Integration will be key to the success of the one army concept.
5: We're very lucky in in two rifles. We have a a paired uh, relationship with seven rifles, our sister regiment, and they've got a large number of individuals that are joining us on this exercise, just over 100, which is quite exceptional for a reserve battalion tried where possible to integrate them but also to make sure we provide a demanding exercise that tests both the reserves and regulars in their own elements because it's a very different model
1: this is the first time regular and reservist infanteers have trained on this scale, side-by-side overseas. It's a unique opportunity. My name is Rifleman Thomas Russell. Uh, when well, I'm not with A Company 7 Rifles. Uh, I work at a small boarding school near St Albans. For many of us, this is the first time we've worked with our regular counterparts on such a uh, large scale. So the challenge has been uh, coming up to their level in a very short space of time and being the professional soldiers that
2: they will want to go on operations with. Main
1: Street Blue, over. Watching them in action, it's hard to believe that at home they are teachers, bankers and businessmen. Among this group, 14 languages are spoken. Their commanding officer says they bring something unique and extraordinary to the
2: mix. It's a different dynamic. The motivation is similar to a regular soldier. They're motivated to serve the country. The balance is different because they have a civilian job. Um, They have to balance that civilian job with their military aspirations.
1: Self-disciplined and motivated, the reserve riflemen faced every challenge thrown at them with calm and professionalism, not because they had to, but because they wanted to. Ex-regular Captain Ian Moore-Thompson now serves with seven rifles.
4: When you step back into green kit, there is an element of it coming naturally. It is not identical because it is the reserves and, and you have to be mindful that you are dealing with Reservist soldiers who are very capable, in some ways very intelligent. And they may not have the skills uh, intuitively, but they learn them very quickly.
1: The exercise gave rifleman Kishan Tandy, a city insurance broker, food for thought.
5: Like every time I do stuff with the, the army, there's always little bits and pieces, but the main thing is mental robustness. And I think coming out here reinforces that. You need mental robustness to be able to do this and cope in an environment like this, but that is one of the main things that I certainly take, uh, take back to work with me.
1: This exercise not only gave the reservists a unique insight into the future one army structure, but also a taste of the very different culture that exists in Kenya.
0: Fiona Weir reporting from Kenya. And while we're talking about Kenya, Christopher, uh, the president there has plans, specific plans for tackling Islamist extremism. Um,
2: We're saying there that soldiers don't get an idea of the culture in, in Kenya. Kenya has one of the biggest terrorist problems in the whole of Africa. The president, President Kenyatta, is going to open up a Guantanamo of his own. That's the reality of Kenya, not simply as a training ground four times the size of Salisbury Plain.
0: The Defence Secretary Michael Fallon has reaffirmed the government's commitment to spending £180 million on upgrading the Falkland Islands harbour facilities and fuel infrastructure. He spent time talking to local people and visiting the last military-seeking search and rescue unit still in operation.
2: I'm here to underline a uh, commitment to the defence of the Falklands and to make clear that we're now implementing our uh, plan to modernise the defence infrastructure here. That includes uh, replacement of the Mount Pleasant uh, power station, works at the Mar jetty, uh, the supporting infrastructure for our um, troops and planes here. Defence spending is increasing now in Britain, and the Falklands should uh, are entitled to a share of that.
0: Michael Fallon, uh, Christopher, the first Defence Secretary to visit the Falklands in 14 years. Last one was Geoff Hoon.
2: Right. But don't forget, other ministers have been there. There's been a whole train of ministers there. Um, and most importantly, I think, anyway, that he was going there as a symbol. New politics in in Argentina. And so when uh, Fallon says uh, to the Falkland Islands, don't worry, we're not going anywhere, <laughs> he's actually saying to Buenos Aires, don't worry, we're not going anywhere.
0: Yeah. Mm. And while we're talking about dates, um, the post office... Oh. Sorry.
2: Sorry, I was just a little, actually.
0: <laughs> post office, 500 years old this week. Um, I wasn't asking you out there, by the way, but it goes back longer than that. Uh, 700 years in your view, and there's a military connection.
2: OK, 500 years ago, 1516, uh, what happens? Henry VIII starts up the post office that we know today, more or less what we know today. And that's the data we works on. But in fact, if you go back 200 years... The army, because the army was at war, of King Edward was at war, started a postal service and set up a load of stables all around the country, which were called post stables, and in those stables were horses. And the average horse could go 15 miles, 15 miles before it had to give up. That's the origin of the post office. We
0: must give up. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll speak to you the same time next week. Bye-bye for now.
1: of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces.